On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about body cameras on police. Toronto is now going to be doing it. Should Hamilton be following suit? There's been discussion about this for a long time. President of the Hamilton Police Association will join us to give his opinion on whether his officers should be doing this. Also, we have a new finance minister. There have been lots of points of discussion already about whether or not we will be heading towards a clamping down of spending because heaven knows we spend a lot, or if we are going to keep expanding the spending in Canada. Which way is Christia Freeland going to go? We're going to talk about it as well. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We learned yesterday that Toronto is going to be outfitting its police officers with body cameras now, twenty, almost 2,400 cameras they're buying. It's not going to come cheap. The equipment is going to cost something in the neighborhood of $34 million to get. But this has been an issue that has been bouncing back and forth for a long time now. Critics of police, and you've heard them, they say these body cameras are absolutely necessary to show when the police brutalize someone. And defenders of the police say, no, no, it's essential to have these cameras to show when the police are doing something right or when false claims of police brutality are leveled. It's a, it's an interesting topic. It seems as though it's a reasonably easy solution, even if it's a little pricey. You want to bring in Clint Tulin, who's the president of the Hamilton Police Association. That is the police union here in the city. He joins us now. Clint, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I want to get to this first because it seems as though in the city, and I don't know if this is accurate or where this came from, there seems to be a belief that police officers in the city, including the association as an overall umbrella organization, are against the idea of body cameras. Are you? Absolutely not. No. um, I've I've said this before that in my experience, and that's um, six full years of defending our members when allegations come upon them, in the vast majority of the cases, a body-worn camera would uh, exonerate them, and it would it would illustrate that they were they were working within uh, the confines of what they're allowed to do, use of force wise within the legal framework, so on and so forth. Has that position that you have, and that many of your officers has, has that been made clearly known to the leadership of the police service? Well, I, I've actually yes, I've had conversations with the leadership, and uh, I told them my position. Uh, I'm very, very confident that if our officers are wearing cameras, that it's going to actually help us, not harm us. Um, You know, and then we get into the different discussions, which you just uh, you just alluded to. And that's, you know, the cost and the effectiveness and actually what kind of a return you get on that kind of investment. So the response is neutral then from your perspective or that there are just so many complications that it hasn't been done yet? Or why, why are we not, why are police not wearing them at this point in, in Hamilton? Well, I, I think it's a combination and, and I've seen a couple of presentations by, um, in this case, it's Superintendent Worcester of the Hamilton Police Service. And when, when it's weighing the costs versus the benefits um, and there's so many different things that come into this beyond just the price tag, and that is the issues such as um, freedom of information, what kind of information you can give out, privacy. Does your average citizen want to call the police and then be videotaped? Um, how, how the storage is done, uh, who has access to that. So there's so many different things that go on. I think that the kind of the pullback from the service, and this is my own opinion, is that it's going to come at a significant cost, and where's that money going to come from? Because if it's going to come from the budget, it's it's just not a good idea. 
The fact though, that Toronto is now going ahead with this, um, do, do you think that when, when there's an, an organization, a police association that's so big, so close to us as essentially a giant Canadian guinea pig, do you think this is going to grease the skids towards us being able to have it here as well? Do you think, I mean, one way or another, I, I guess what we're going to see is it's either going to be really good or really bad, but it's going to help us make a decision. I would assume. I would think so. And I, I mean, don't forget, they, uh, uh, Toronto did a pilot project on um, body-worn cameras in the past. Um, they at least have some information to, to kind of refer to as to the effectiveness and to, to the benefits to it. Uh, the number that you threw out there, I was a little shocked myself when I was listening to that $30-plus million. Um, that, again, you know, you, you, it, it's not a case of putting a price on accountability or transparency. It's whether or not you're going to actually get value for that dollar. And then the next question is, where is that money going to come from? Well, that, that is, and certainly we know that in the city here, we've already had uh, discussions and are having discussions around defunding the police. And, and so uh, if it's coming out of the police budget, I assume, and some people want to take even more out and then you want to take the cameras. Um, I mean, look, it's a fair question about where that money comes from. The other issue is, excuse me, <clears throat> just for people who think like you and like I, that 34 million sounds extravagantly high for 2,300 cameras. It's also the stuff behind it, the, you know, I mean, you don't just wear the cameras. They have to, the information has to be stored somewhere and someone has to handle it. And there's like, there's lots of different pieces to this. The other thing though, Clint, that really always, and I want to get into some of the more details in a, in a second after a break, but the, the issues that you talk about, about privacy and everything else, these sound like they are non-important issues when we're talking about police safety and public safety until they become an issue. They're, they're not an issue until they become an issue, and then we suddenly have other discussions to do. Well, and absolutely. And that, like, there's a two-part to that, actually, and that is if you look at um, the cost, which you just mentioned, you need IT people. You need people who understand how to transfer data, who redact data for court, that kind of thing. You need a, a number of full-time positions to be able to deal with that. The second part is, and you again, you just hit the nail on the head, if you look at the most recent... Um, articles in the newspapers and in the media about the COVID and the access that police have had to that information. Already we have people crying uh, out saying that we're accessing information, private uh, information. That is the same type of thing that we're going to deal with with body-worn cameras. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Clint, um, we just saw an example of the the good and the bad, I suppose, of body cameras. Um, yesterday, we saw body cam video release. Now, it was from California. It involved the Raptors president, Masai Ujiri, and a California officer who was working at the finals last year in the NBA. This one didn't look good for the police officer. When you see the ones that don't look good for police, does that deter you from the idea of bringing them in? No, absolutely not. Um I can tell you, Scott, that when, 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 I, when I assist our officers when there's allegations of wrongdoing, uh, the first thing that I tell them is, you know, let's, let's get to the bottom of the truth, and once that's done, then we can move forward. And I, there's not a Hamilton police officer uh, that's, that's supportive of wrongdoings by their, by their peers. So, I mean, if somebody is doing something wrong, catching it on video is is just a matter of course and they need to be held responsible and uh and and dealt with appropriately appropriately according to the behavior so no it doesn't deter me at all 
And, and what you say, I think, is exactly what I think a lot of people really want to hear, and that is, if there is camera, if there are cameras, and if there is footage, and if we see something play out, and if it does look like the officer is in the wrong, I think people want to say, we don't want to see now a long, drawn-out, protracted thing where the officer gets off on a technicality or police say, no, there's really nothing wrong here when people can see with their own eyes. Um, you know, I mean, again, I understand what the union's job is to defend the officers, but it you potentially open the door to even more problems if you tell people what you see, what you're seeing is not really what you're seeing. Yeah, and and there is always context to it. I mean, and that's important when we're when we're dealing with these matters um, and these allegations because uh, you know, there's are there mitigating factors? Are there other issues that the camera didn't catch? You you certainly have to explore those those dynamics. But the truth of the matter is, in so many of the cases, and you cited one, it's pretty clear. I mean, there's not many questions really to be asked in that, and I. You know, it's my belief that most interactions that would be caught on on a camera uh, worn by a police officer, that it's going to be pretty straightforward. There's always going to be those those one offs that are going to be a little bit more um, a little bit more uh, complicated. And and I can tell you right now, uh, part of the thing about the cameras that that I find attractive is it's like anything else in the world. The police officer will be of the mindset I'm filming this as I'm doing this. So my accountability uh, you know, is perceivably a little bit higher. So, um, mm. you know, every police, listen, I've, I've had days, Scott, where I've, uh, I've gone home and I've been with my kids all day long, got a couple hours sleep, went back into uh, work that night and been a little bit testy. This might check those police officers who might be in a, you know, just be not in the right frame of mind, but kind of back them up a little bit. So, and I think that's good for everybody. Well, and the flip side, uh, you know, to, to your benefit as well, the flip side is that pr- I'm guessing there would be quite a few cases of allegations of police misconduct that would go away if that camera caught the incident and we could see how the police officer reacted and, and saw, well, you know what, they didn't actually do what was said. I mean, it goes both ways. Oh, absolutely. And I, and again, I, I can tell you right now, it's my experience that that would be uh, the more prevalent case, it would be more a case of uh, complaints going away based on the fact that there's actual video of it. And and Scott, I tell, you know, as a road supervisor, um, I would tell the officers just expect to be videoed every day. Um, you know, you, you go to different websites, but about 85% of all Canadians have smartphones right now. Um, we, we interact with police, or sorry, with the public about 20 million times a year. Those are like there is a significant number of police interactions that are already being uh, videoed, and it is a very very small number that is being uh, put out there in the public and social media where police misconduct is being shown. I'm not. I am certainly not afraid of our officers wearing cameras because I know that they do the right thing almost every time. You mentioned a few minutes ago context, and I think this is probably the most important part of this, but it's also the most difficult part of this. And you also just mentioned like everybody's got a camera now on their phone. Well, we saw in the States, the George Floyd case. I mean, I know no police officer probably wants to talk about it because it's, it's, you know, it doesn't look good on police, even though it was one officer or four officers. But there are other videos that came out before. I don't think it excuses it. In fact, I, you know, still kneeling on someone for that long doesn't excuse it. But there are other videos that show other contexts. But then you've got this one. How do you demonstrate the context, even if you have the film? 
Well, it's funny because we're going full circle. It comes down to um, the facts as the, the, the police officer, as an individual, how they perceived a particular incident. And that is not going to change. And that's always the way it's been. And, and I know, uh, I, I believe you're referring to the actual body cams of the officers as well. It shows a different perspective yes. Yes. than the, the, the original narrative. And, and, and again, this is something that we've been saying for an awful long time, that when we see snippets of, of police interactions in social media, we, we're very, very confident that, that there's parts that are missing, either it's the front end or the back end. And that's, again, where a body camera comes, uh, comes in handy. And if, if I'm not sure if you've, you've seen it, that there's, there's this, um, there was an ongoing issue in, I believe it was Buffalo, called uh, the Blue Klux Klan, where a pin was handed to a police officer. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But no. it, was, it was a setup by, by an, a couple of individuals. They showed the snippet of the actual interaction, then posted that on social media. But what they didn't know is that the officers had body cams on that filmed the whole incident. And it certainly gave a different perspective of what really happened in that interaction. It is, uh, it is absolutely, uh, look, I, I'm a hundred percent thrilled to hear you again, um, say that you're in favor of this. Cause I do think it's a really good idea. I don't know where the money comes from, but it, I would have been very disheartened to hear you say that you are really against it. So I'm very glad to hear that. And I think a lot of other people will be as well. And, and let's hope that somehow we can make this work and, and maybe we get some lessons from Toronto and see how it works there. Clint Tulin, president of the Hamilton police association. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. And thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last night on the show, if you were listening, and I hope you were, we were chatting about Christia Freeland and her new job as finance minister, specifically her lack of a direct financial background, which is unusual in this post. And to be clear, this doesn't mean that she can't do the job. She's done many jobs. She's done them well. She is absolutely an intelligent woman. She is an accomplished woman. She's done a lot of great things within her government that, that her government is proud of. So this is not about the inability necessarily. It's just, there are questions because it's an unusual position for someone to be in who doesn't have that background. And I am absolutely, because I think we all have to, hoping she succeeds wildly. I think I'm hoping that she is fantastic at this job because I think it's so important. Having said that, I read a Reuters story today. Headline was this, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is weighing sweeping changes to Canada's social welfare system and a series of economic measures that will align the country with ambitious climate goals, according to people familiar with the matter. That was a headline. It's a long headline. And then you go down in the story a bit and you read this line. This is a quote. The taps are really going to be turned on, said a fiscally conservative liberal who's concerned that spending could get out of hand. That's the biggest risk. That's a politician in the Liberal Party saying the taps are about to really be turned on. Aaron Woodrick is the Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us now. Aaron, thanks for doing this today. Um, I read this story and the only thing I can think of is this sounds expensive. <laughs> no, you're right. And as someone who, you know, is, is paid to watch the books, uh, it's the sort of thing that makes your heart stop for a second uh, because, you know, that, that kind of language is, is worrisome enough in the best of times. We're certainly not in the best of times. And remember, this is coming from someone inside the Liberal government um, who, you know, has been comfortable with, with $30 billion deficits. Now we have a $343 billion in rising deficit. So the idea that the taps are going to be turned on 
Um, the tops have been sort of on full bore for months right now, and the idea was once we sort of move to reopening the economy that the tops would turn off. Uh, so it is alarming to hear, um, you know, leaks like that coming out of this government, and it really makes you wonder uh, what the government has up their sleeve next. Yeah, if we've just been spraying things with a garden hose so far, I'm a little fearful of the fire hose that may be whipped out right now to uh, to start spraying, because th- there are some predictions that have come out today about this whole idea that we could be running a hundred billion dollar plus deficits for another year or two after this. And again, I'm not an economist. I don't pretend that I could be finance minister, even though I'm a journalist like Christy, Christia Freeland. Uh, she's a little more accomplished at this stuff than I am. Nonetheless, that's an enormous, unbelievable amount of money considering what the biggest deficits have been out of wartime prior to now. We're, we're, we're just blowing the walls down with this stuff. Yeah, and then we have to remember, it's the, the, the principle is the same as for your own household. I mean, you, you, money you borrow, you have to pay back. This is not free money coming out of the sky. And if you, if you have a disaster strike your family and you have to borrow money, say, say a disaster strikes your family and you, you can't work for a few months and you have to borrow money, I think it would be odd that at the end of that, the first thing you say is, well, you know what, we should borrow more money right now. I, I think you would be looking at ways to climb back, not to, to just start uh, borrowing and spending more. And yet that's exactly what we're hearing with language like this. When the prime minister says he wants to go big, um, that makes me very nervous because we, we are in a very weak position. This is the last time of any time that we should be thinking about going big, so to speak. You know, you use the example and, and Aaron, this is, I get confused about this all the time because we talk money on the show with some regularity. And whenever I use the example of comparing the government's budgeting process or whatever to the household budget that you just used, I get people who say that's, you can't do that. That's not a fair comparison. That's completely different. It's not allowed to be used. And I grant you that it's not exactly the same, but I don't think it's that far off, is it? No, I mean, the primary difference is that governments never die and that governments have a, a power that you and I don't have, the power to tax. Um, but all, all that does is it changes the dynamic so that when government spends, you know that the, the main way that they're going to get that back is to tax you. And that, of course, has other implications for people trying to make ends meet, for businesses that are making decisions. And so, yes, you're, it's true. The, the analogy is not exact, but mathematics is the same. When you borrow money, you have to pay it back. The government has different tools to do that, but saying that we should just, you know, wave our hands and not worry about borrowing because it's government doing it, I, I, I don't think that's right. I, I don't think it's a secret to anybody who listens to this show that I'm a fiscal conservative. I don't, I don't make any bones about that. I, and so, um, wh- one thing that I truly believe is that when governments of any stripe give free stuff, and when I say free, it's not free to everybody. I mean, it's not taxed. It's, you still have to pay for it, but people get stuff they're not having to pay for directly. When they get that, they don't want to give it away. And so if we start hearing about these programs of massive, massive social spending and far, national pharmacare and uh, you know guaranteed income and all these kind of things, listen, once these things go into place, we're never getting rid of them ever again. doesn't matter what government's in place. 
Yeah, a lot of cases that is the trap that you get yourselves into. But I, I think it speaks more to just dishonest politics. Like I, I'm a, I'm a small government person. I believe that government needs to do a few important things and do them well, and that we run into trouble when they try to do too many things and spread themselves too thin. But I respect people that take the opposite view um, if they can explain how to pay for it. What I don't have time for is people who want to promise the moon but have no, no intent or concern about how they're going to pay for those promises. If you, uh, you know, if you want to present to people the option of, we'll tax you more and you'll get more, I-, I could live with that fight. I'm happy to debate that. But to promise all this more stuff, but you don't have to pay for it, I just think that's, uh, that's misleading and it's dishonest. Somebody else can pay for it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Aaron Woodrick, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, about what we're expecting from the new finance minister, Some people have been really hoping that this means that this change means we're going to clamp down a little bit. We've spent $350 billion to get through COVID so far, roughly. And this is the time to rein it in a bit. Now we're seeing stories of much more widespread social spending and other things that would be very, very, very expensive. Um, It is, I think, worth pointing out here, Aaron, that uh, as the stories are coming out, over the last few days about with the documents, about what happened with the we charity situation, we wonder if Christia Freeland is going to stand up to the prime minister if he wants to spend. Um, she was the chair of the committee that okayed the we payments. It doesn't, it doesn't suggest that she is going to necessarily tell him to sit down and pay attention that she's the finance minister and we're going to do it my way. Yeah. Look, like you were saying earlier, there's no question about Christia Freeland's competence. Uh, the question, though, is whether or not she has had put in this role precisely because she is such a strong ally of the prime minister. And that raises questions about whether or not uh, she's going to push back in the way that we now find out Bill Morneau was doing. If one of, the, one of the reasons Bill Morneau was gone, I think part of the reason is, of course, the we situation, but also that he was clashing with the prime minister about going forward. I think that is uh, that's disconcerting for those of us that like to see some debate there and not just have a finance minister that is, you know, exactly of like mind to the prime minister. If you are a fiscal conservative or someone who thinks that even if you're not really, but you just think, okay, you know what, we've spent enough, we've got to put some controls in. Is there really any way to do anything here? Because when the government comes back in September, I mean, the, the government has said, you can have a vote of non-confidence and topple us. But if what you're, if what they're proposing is massive social programs. The Green Party and the NDP are going to love this. They're not going to vote to topple the Liberals. They're happy to go along with this, which means it's going to go ahead. Well, I would say two things. One is there, there's a reason all of this is leaking now. Governments do this on purpose. They're floating a trial balloon and they're, they're trying to gauge public reaction. If they see the public reaction, they're not reading the room right, they will withdraw some of this and may, maybe scale it back. Um, the other thing is what, what is, what do they mean when they say go big? I think there are some things that would have a lot broader appeal than others. And we've heard Christopher Freeland and the Prime Minister talk about a green recovery. Um, you know, no one's against uh, the environment, Scott. Everybody would love a cleaner environment uh, to deal with climate change. But um, if it means spending tens, hundreds of billions of dollars on, you know, misguided uh, strategies about green energy, we've seen what, what happens in Ontario when that goes sideways. I'm not sure that's the kind of thing that would really have uh, widespread support, or certainly not the level of support that the Liberals would hope it would. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I don't get the sense that there's a great deal of pushback in a lot of corners, certainly not in the large urban areas, which is where their base is. And 
You know, I, I look. You look at the electoral map. I don't think the Liberals look west of Ontario and really give two flying hoots about what they say out there about oil or anything else because there's no Liberals out there. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do what the people in Toronto and Vancouver. Well, that's west, but Vancouver and Montreal and Ottawa really like, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, like that, and that's uh, that's very common with every political party, right? They they care more about their own voters than the people who would never vote for them. I would say this though, Scott. I think that. Um, the political environment we're in now, there is a unusually high level of awareness about things like spending um, that we normally don't see. And, and I actually think it's a good thing overall yes. um, that people pay more attention to it. Because, I, you know, my day job has been trying to uh, make people appreciate that debts and deficits matter. And for a lot of people, it doesn't impact you on a day-to-day basis. They see it now. They see it because they've, they've lost jobs. They've taken pay cuts. They've seen businesses in their communities suffer. So I think they understand more than ever that we have we have borrowed money and that has to be paid back and that it, there is no free lunch. And I, I, it's going to be interesting to see going forward whether that translates into, um, you know, political outcomes where people say, you know what, we're all for helping people, but we also recognize this, there's a cost attached to this and eventually someone has to pay it. Well, and and, pe- and I think that's the part that's missing though, Aaron, because uh, when I told a couple of people, and we talked about it on the show the other day, but when I talked to a couple of people before that and said, do you know that we spend 28 billion, just federally, $28 billion a year just to pay interest on our debt? People were shocked by that. And, and that's $28 billion that doesn't go to programs, doesn't go to infrastructure. We're flushing that money down the toilet. And that was before adding $340 billion to the debt. We're probably going to be paying $40 billion a year in that. That's real money that we can't spend on other things. And people don't know that. Yeah. And that, I said, that is also with extremely rock bottom, low interest rates. I mean, if, if we did not have interest rates at historical lows right now, we would already be in the middle of a massive fiscal crisis. So we are really just rolling the dice and crossing our fingers and hoping interest rates stay low. Uh, you know, anyone who's got a mortgage will know there's a big difference if you lock in at 2.5 and you're up for renewal and suddenly it's 5 7%. That's a really big difference to your bottom line. That's where we're at with government right now. We are only doing, we are only treading water because interest rates are super low. And uh, if they go up, we suddenly have a really big problem on our yeah, you know, I, look, I, I, we have said on the show, lest anyone think that we're just bashing liberals, I, we've given credit for some of the stuff, much of the stuff that was done. We know that stuff had to be done. Money had to be spent during this COVID crisis. And there are things the liberals did that were really, really good and got people through the, the CERB and others. There's a lot of people who are very, very thankful for that. The issue is that was a, that was a catastrophe that was unforeseen and that we couldn't do anything about it except that. I don't know that we want to take the catastrophe and exacerbate it beyond what we absolutely have to. And I, and that's what I see about to happen, or at least rumored to be about to happen. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. There were, there were need to do's, but now we're talking about nice to haves. And I think the prime minister may not be reading the mood publicly when he keeps talking about this disaster, this worldwide disaster where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died and countless lives have been ruined and he's framing it as an opportunity i just i don't think a lot of people i think that would strike a lot of people as very odd to frame it as this great opportunity this is a this is a very bad situation we are trying to climb out of and for him to sort of say hey let's all take a breather and think about all and let's let's um you know brainstorm about all the great things we could do i'm just not sure that a lot of people are at that they're still worrying about you know, making it to next month and making their mortgage payments and getting groceries. The idea that we should like use this as a chance to brainstorm all these fantastic new opportunities. 
I'm just not sure that that's the public mood. Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.